Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It is Tuesday, the 20th of August. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. I want to lead off with an encouragement um, to start reading the Bible out loud with somebody else. That's right. Uh, Just start reading the Bible out loud with somebody else. And you say, say, why would I want to do that? Um, what would be the motivation to read the Bible out loud with somebody else? Like, isn't the Bible something that I'm just supposed to uh, spend time with in private? Isn't it something that, well, yes, it's read publicly in worship in the context of corporate worship, but, you know, it's not read out loud anywhere else, right? Wrong, 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 wrong. Um, it, it, the Bible is is actually first and foremost a part of an oral tradition, It was only at the advent of the printing press, which has been relatively recently in terms of human history, that people uh, began to, like, possess their own Bible and and therefore have the opportunity to read and then study the Bible personally and in private. Prior to that, the Bible was read in public because, you know, maybe the whole community had one access to one Bible and therefore the person who had that access, ordinarily the priest— um, would read it or portions of it aloud to the people. Now, you and I both know that with the advent of the printing press also came the realization that, ha those guys had not been reading us the whole thing over time. Well, we, we stumble in that today uh, as well, or stumble into that same reality today in our own private reading. We have selected texts that we read over and over again. Uh, and my guess is none of us is really reading the full corpus of uh, of the Bible, except for those who are like following a very disciplined sort of read the Bible in a year, every year kind of plan, which I certainly advocate. Uh, The Bible in 90 Days is a great reading program if you want to um, have a a fairly fast refresher on the entire corpus of the scriptures. Let me just encourage you to consider reading the Bible out loud with somebody else and start with some, you know, short book, uh, preferably a gospel, and actually pick a public place where you're going to sit down and, and and read together. So you know, meet meet with a friend at a uh, at a local coffee shop. You know, each with your Bibles. I would recommend that you both have the same translation, although that is not essential. Um, sometimes the uh, the differences in the translation then lead us into conversations about, well, I wonder why that's translated that way in yours and this way in mine, and might lead us into a deeper conversation. But I would say that for starters, having the same uh, translation as the other person with whom you're reading makes the whole exercise somewhat less confusing. I would start with uh, something like the Gospel of Mark, particularly if you are reading with a new Christian or someone who's an interested seeker and has actually either never read the Bible before, certainly never uh, read it in conversation with another person before, um, start with, you know, I think Mark's probably the most simple of the Gospels. It certainly presents who Jesus is, what he came to do, and then the passion uh, of the Christ. And so you get, you know, you certainly get the whole story. Now, you'll note that if you start with the Gospel of Mark, 
um, what your reading partner, if they've never read any of the Gospels before, what your reading partner might immediately recognize is, hey, there's no Christmas story in here, which then leads you to a great opportunity to talk about hmm, the Christmas stories that are Uh, or the Advent stories, I should call them, the Advent of Christ, the stories contained in both Matthew and Luke, and then why those are different, and which stories appear where, and why. And, well, that's because these guys were talking to specific communities. Well, what does that mean? Well, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. I mean, you can see where this leads, right? And then you get, uh, that will get you into a conversation then also about John, who also has no Advent narrative specifically. Um, And the Gospel of John is an awesome book to read out loud with somebody. Uh, It's just fantastic to introduce someone else to the person of Christ. So there you go. Read out loud. If you need inspiration for reading out loud, I offer you these verses from the book of Romans. Uh, In chapter 10, Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Let us be peoples who, people who read it out loud with one another. We'll be right back. One week ago, a guy named John Cooper, who happens to be the lead singer and the bassist for uh, a band called Skillet, he posted on his Facebook page uh, something uh, that he titled, What in God's Name is Happening in Christianity? Now, John Cooper um, is a popular guy. And what he said in his Facebook page, post excuse me, was provocative. And it was provocative because he was commenting on um, the recent, what I would call deconfession, uh, deconstruction of the faith, abandonment of uh, uh, of the truth of the faith, by another very high-profile professional Christian, and that is Marty Sampson of Hillsong. Now, Marty Sampson of Hillsong has since responded to John Cooper's Facebook post, uh, in some way defending himself. But I want to read a few of the lines from John Cooper's post because we're going to talk with. John Cooper here in just a minute about, you know, what 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 provoked him? What is concerning him in terms of these public proclamations by professional Christians that they no longer, no longer um, hold to the veracity of the faith that they once professed? So John Cooper posted these uh, these comments. And again, you can check it out on Facebook. Uh, what in God's name is happening in Christianity? He said he was stunned that the most important thing uh, that these leaders felt like they had to express um, were these bold proclamations of of the way in which they no longer believe, the things they no longer believe, um, and steering others to, to similar conclusions. And he says, quote, I'm perplexed. Why are they not embarrassed, humbled, ashamed, fearful, confused? Why be so eager to continue leading other people when you clearly don't know where you are headed? Now, that is an excellent question and uh, and a good provocation for conversation. So up next, John Cooper from Skillet. So I'm joined today by John Cooper. You recognize his name uh, as the lead singer and bassist for Skillet. 
And so, John, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. It's great to talk to you, and I appreciate you recognizing that I play bass. Most people forget that. <laughs> Look, so um, I've had time, you know, like I, I even, I know you have a graphic novel that people have to go on tour to get. Like, I've, I'm paying attention, man. You are. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So um, the reason that we're having you on is we want to talk with you about, we have talked on the program about what I will just describe as sort of the deconfession or confession of a new understanding of their own place and walk of a couple of high-profile professional Christians lately. We have talked here about Josh Harris. We have talked about Marty um, Sampson. And you posted um, something on your Facebook page that's it's really gone viral. People, um, you know, people have read it. They've appreciated it. And so I just wanted to bring you on and let you just talk about your passion for the Word of God and your passion for for the church, because that's really what feels like to me comes out in what you're saying. Yeah, it, uh, it, I'm glad that's what's coming through because that's accurate. This was not something that I posted uh, uh, to to be to attack somebody out of out of like spite or anger or something like that. This started out of honestly just sadness, sadness to see people that have influenced me, um, influenced my family, my kids. Um, you know, before three days ago, the only thing I knew about Marty Sampson was my kids growing up on a tour bus, uh, unable to go to church, and me and my wife would turn on Hillsong DVDs, and, and my kids learned how to worship God, how to pray to God uh, from, from watching these worship DVDs. My daughter gave her life to Christ after a worship time when she was four years old, um, when we were worshiping as a family and it was painful. It's really, really painful. It's depressing. And then I'm upset because not only is that happening, not only is it painful, but I'm, I'm looking at some of these statements that, that were, uh, honestly, I'm not trying to attack him. It wasn't about that, but they were just kind of flippant. And they were kind of like, uh, I'm kind of losing my faith. Honestly, the only thing I, I believe now is nothing. And it's the best of it, happiest I've ever been. And, and then, like, statements about, you know, science has poked holes in religion and this. And, and I'm just like, dude, you're somebody that we've been looking to for 20 years. And so it's not just that, but that post really got to me. It was, it was the, the final straw for me when, I'm, when I was like, you know what? I actually thought no one would care what I wrote. I didn't think anybody would even read it. My Facebook only had 8,000 followers at the time. I, I only started Facebook three months ago. So I figured no one would care. They'd be like, why are you writing this? But I was just upset, and I wanted to just plead with anybody that would listen, can we just get back to the preeminence of the Word of God? We are living in a society that only values emotion, only values emotional arguments, and, I, and I'm tired of it because the Word of God is the only thing that never changes. And I just want to plead with the church to go back. Stop listening to, the, to the, all, these, all these just cool people. I'm one of them. I, po- I posted that in my thing, too. <laughs> I'm not trying to say, now listen to me because I'm awesome. I'm saying, don't listen to me over a, a teacher of the Word of God. That, that, that's not really what I do. I'm an artist. And I think that we are elevating in culture, people that are, they look the right way, they sing the right way, they say the right thing in an emotional song. And I'm not just blaming the, 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 the people like me. I'm also blaming the church. We're just not valuing the Word of God as we ought. 
we are valuing entertainment and we want our ears to be tickled on a Sunday morning with a song that makes me feel really good and like a child again. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I hear you. Why don't we sing about God and who he is for a change? So, John, and again, I'm talking with John Cooper from Skillet. Um, We're talking about, I'll just describe it this way. We're talking about uh, a shared passion for the veracity of the Word of God and the supremacy of truth, real truth, capital T kind of truth. Um, and and we're we're talking about a passion for the church. And when I use that term, I'm not talking about some kind of institutional expression. I'm talking about the reality of the bride of Christ. I get a sense from you in, in hearing you talk and in reading what you've written on this topic. Um, I get a sense that the truth in the person of Jesus Christ is really like you are attracted to him in a really deeply fundamental way. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, otherwise, it's like the spirit to me, like the spirit of the age is this, that obviously all truth is relative. That's the spirit of the age. And um, and, and when it comes to Jesus, he's cool. He's love. He's light. He is goodness. And he might be a way to heaven. And honestly, I just think it's the most brilliant thing the devil could do because it's so much like Christianity, but it's actually not Christianity because Jesus is the way to heaven. So otherwise, all we're doing is just everybody has their own version of what Jesus is. And sometimes I get to a quarry, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm here in this church meeting. We're all singing to Jesus. We're singing these songs. I get it. I, it some of it's true. But I'm not always sure we're singing to the same Jesus because Jesus is the lion and the lamb. So uh, those kind of things really kind of bother me a little bit. Um, And I feel that we are being robbed of how great God is because we're trying to make God into our image of what we think is good and what we think is love and so on and so forth. And the truth is, is that if we don't think God is good, then we need to change. He doesn't need to change. We need to change because it could just be that the creator of the universe, who is goodness, he might be more right than us. Duh. So it really irritates me, and, and I'm really passionate about it. So in what you posted on Facebook, um, I appreciated the reality uh, that we are wrestling with Scripture. We are wrestling with the ways in which our lives are out of conformity, our culture is out of conformity. But we're not trying to wrestle God into conformity with what we want. The wrestling is in getting to the place where we willingly submit to the work of the Holy Spirit, the renewing of our minds uh, through the Word of God, and that we would actually be the ones who are changed. Absolutely. I I really feel that this kind of, you see this a lot when people kind of, you know, fall away from from Christianity or what have you. And and there seems to be like a lot of finger pointing at the church. It's the church's fault for the decision that this individual is making. And I just find it to be really disingenuous. I understand where it comes from. uh, And I know it's nice to be able to kind of, you know, it's nice to kind of be able to blame people. Perhaps there are things the church has done that are bad because we're all human and we probably do stupid stuff. But the point is, is that to act like the church is not wrestling with real issues is is just not true. Uh, there's, like I said, there's a there's a billion books written on how a good how a God of love uh, could could not let everybody into heaven. Like why why do we have to pay a price to not serve Christ? That sort of there's so many books about it. I've never met a pastor that wouldn't sit down and be like, well, let me explain to you why we believe what we believe. And, and act like it's not a hard truth. It is a hard truth. So I don't think that that's fair. And, and I, do, I do feel like 
that, that what is happening not to get too much into like philosophy type stuff, but we are basically seeing the the spawn, the grandchildren of postmodern thought, which is just saying that there is no absolute truth. What your experience is different than mine, which leads you to a different truth than mine. And what we are seeing is that instead of a, a lot of leaders challenging that spirit of the age with the truth of the kingdom of God and the, and the words of the, of the Bible, we are seeing the opposite happen. We are seeing the church influenced by postmodern thought and mm-hmm. what it means to be relevant. We want to be relevant to the world, so we need to be a little bit more like the world and be like what they say is cool. And maybe we can have it both ways. Maybe we can have Jesus be awesome and good, and, and he is the way, but there's lots of ways. It's just kind of like the natural thing to have happened once you lose absolute truth. Yeah, I think there's no question that you've uh, you, you've got your finger right there on the pulse of the concern. The spirit of the age is is clearly in the church and um, being friends with the world, uh, even though it puts us at enmity with God, seems to be rising uh, in in importance in people's lives. So, um, hey, one 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 last quick question before you leave us. I know you've got a tight schedule, and thank you thank you so much again for being here today. Sure. Um, this might seem a completely off the wall question, but is your mom still living? Uh, no, she is not. She okay. passed away when I was fourteen. Oh, I'm so sorry because I know that she was a um, she was a pianist in your church growing up. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So, well, because I'm just I've just I was um, I was smiling like a mom when I was reading what you wrote, and I was thinking <laughs> to myself. I don't know what John's mom's response was the first time he got a tattoo or the first time he started playing, you know, (laughs) in this rock band for Jesus. But I think right now she's like smiling. And so um, I'm I'm sorry that you've lost her. But um, but gosh, I'm I sure am glad that you are walking in the way of her Lord and Savior. Oh, yeah. She she's in the cloud right now. (laughs) She's like, that's my boy. That's my boy. Yeah. No question about it. (laughs) No question about that. A funny story, which we don't have time to get into, but my mom probably was a Jesus fanatic, taught me about the Bible ever since I was a kid, loved Jesus in all the best ways, but really believed with all of her heart that the worst thing on the earth was Christian rock music and did not want me playing Christian rock music, believed it was from the devil. And uh, that (laughs) – that changed at the very end before she actually uh, passed away. But uh, yeah, she was not super excited about that. And I wrestled with, you know, this is what exactly I had a conversation with someone yesterday who was talking about the things in his life that led him away from the church because how much it hurt him because he was, you know, struggling with something that no one would talk about and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was just saying, you know, I was raised to believe that I was literally serving the devil's kingdom by playing rock and roll music. But I, I, I felt that I had proved from the word of God that music cannot be created by the devil, that music is something uh, th- that has been here for a long time. We know before we were on this earth was created, there was music, and we know it will be for eternity. That also was, was proven uh, fr- from the Bible. So all that to say, my mom kind of got it before she, before she died. Still was concerned about it, but I know she's uh, she's cheering it on now. <laughs> yeah, thank you for standing firm in the Word of God, uh, John Cooper. Uh, thank you so much for being here today and for what you're doing every day for the kingdom. Oh, excellent! You as well. Thank you. Thank you. All right, friends, we'll be right back. 
experienced uh, adoption into the family of faith through Jesus Christ? Do you understand yourself to be adopted? And if so, um, what a grace and what a glory it is to get to cry out to our Father in heaven, Abba, Abba Daddy, to know that we are a part of uh, not only a fellowship of believers, but a real family of faith, not just here and now, but into all eternity. There are literally millions of people, well, billions of people who don't know that truth, that there is the possibility of being adopted uh, through Christ into the family of God. But there's millions of people living without a functional family today as well. And so we're going to talk about what it looks like to be an orphan, what it means to be adopted as a child, and then what it means to be the father of adopted children. Todd Chipman is a passionate advocate for foster and adoption ministry. Um, he heads up that effort for the uh, International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. He has a new book called Until Every Child is Home, Why the Church Can and Must Care for Orphans. And he's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Americans now have about $1 trillion in personal debt. $1 trillion. I can't even wrap my head around how much money that is. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. Getting into debt is so easy, isn't it? Credit cards, online loans, special financing. If you want to borrow money, it's there for a price. But is it wise? Sometimes it's necessary to go into debt, like when you buy a house or a car. But too much debt can weigh you down and create stress. So when you're tempted to go into debt to get something you want, ask yourself, do I really need it? If you do, could you wait and buy it when you have enough money to buy it with cash? If you don't need it, maybe just let it go. As the Bible says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Now that's wise counsel that will help you live a more content, confident, and generous life. Every one of us who is a Christian has an adoption story, but Todd Chipman has uh, his own personal adoption story as uh, an adopted child and a father of adopted children. He is also a pastor and a teacher and an author, and he's here today to talk with us about Until Every Child is Home. It's a new book, and it helps us as members of local congregations understand why the church can and must care for orphans. Todd, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much, Carmen. A pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you as well. Um, uh, People love stories, and they connect with us through our own stories. So start with either your own story as an adopted child, as a person adopted into the family of faith, as a Christian, or your adoption story as an adoptive dad. Yes, and it it kind of goes in that order. So I'll just uh, run through the chronology. Uh, I am an adopted child. Uh, my parents adopted me the day before Halloween, 1971, so they sort of knew what they were getting into. Uh, and uh, I'm the product of, of uh, what, what is a, a one-time encounter, uh, truly. Uh, everything I know about my biological parents is 
from uh, a two-page letter from Nebraska Children's Home, where I was adopted from a great organization. And uh, my, my biological mother wasn't able to keep me uh, when she found out she was expecting. She was actually uh, kicked out of her home. Uh, not, not a great uh, family situation that she was reared in. And she boarded with a family in Omaha, Nebraska, in fact, a physician who took her in uh, until I was born. And I don't know anything uh, after that. And that was never really a problem for me. Some kids, and boy, we want to understand that as, as uh, fostering, adopting parents, that the biological uh, connection is is uh, challenging for some kids who are in a different home or who adopted into a different family. But for me, it wasn't a problem at all. Uh, some of my earliest memories, my folks uh, telling my older sister and me that we were adopted, that they were not able to have children in the, the natural way. And so they brought us into their home. And the, those are my parents. They're great. Uh, uh, my mom may be listening now, and uh, my, my biological mom, who knows, she may be listening now as well. Uh, I don't know, but I, I would thank her. Uh, I've not, not met her, and uh, some, sometime if that ever works out, it'll be great. But uh, I'm, I'm just grateful for God's providence in my life, and, and my parents raised me in a Christian home. And uh, as a college student, I was brought into God's family, adopted into the family of God through Christ and began to understand the gospel and what God has done for us. And, and as I read scripture, I thought about the concept of God bringing people into his family. And we read in, in the Old Testament, even in Jeremiah chapter 7, when the folks are pleading that they have the temple, the temple, the temple, therefore they won't go into exile. And Jeremiah confronts them. You're, you're not even caring for the, the orphan around you. Uh, and God's always been into ethics and how his people respond to his love for them and in the horizontal spheres of life. And obviously Paul's statements about adoption in Romans 8 and understood those. And in time, my wife and I, though we had, uh, we had five biological children in the first seven years of our marriage. So we, we weren't thinking too much about taking other kids in. But as our oldest went away to college, we had an empty bedroom. And at that time, we began to think and pray about what God would have for us to do to take in uh, kids. And, and we began to discover the need of kids who are in the United States foster care system whose parental rights have been severed. And these are kids who are, are truly orphans uh, right here in the United States. There are about 100,000 of them. And we began to think about what God would have us to do. And in uh, 2015, uh, a couple of little girls uh, came into our home, and we adopted them in 2016. So we have uh, a very, very recent um, adoption story in, in our family. Um, my fifth grandbaby uh, is named Coda, um, and he uh, his parental rights were terminated. And um, my stepdaughter, Christina, and her husband, Ben, just adopted Coda two Fridays ago, so he's brand new to us. And um, and I, this um, it it does it changes the way you think about your family. Um, it changes the way you think about uh, the body of Christ. It changes the way you think about the circumstances of um, of women who come to a place where they recognize, for whatever reason, they cannot raise their own child. Um, and 
and see fit to, um, in some cases, allow others to do that. And, um, and in other cases, we as a, you know, as a collective body here in the United States see, you know, see reason to, um, to make that decision on behalf of the welfare of children. And so, uh, this is a personal, uh, this is personal for me. I also worship in a congregation, uh, called Grace Community in Nashville, Tennessee, that, that has a real adoptive culture. And, mm. um, and so um, I would love for you to talk about uh, some of the things that really change in the life of a congregation when we begin to understand adoption as not just, you know, not just like as a thing that we do, but as the people who we are, because it does change our understanding of the Great Commission. It understands our uh, our understanding in, in terms of empathy, people who whose skin color, melanin uh, levels may be different than our own. We talk about, um, you know, it, it's it changes literally the complexion of a congregation. Um, and then also, I know that for you, one of the one of the chapters in this book is on the topic of sex trafficking and how we, you know, how our understanding of all of that is really changed um, when we start engaging the need of the church to be drawing people who are orphaned in our culture um, into the family. So, again, my conversation partner is Todd Chipman. We are talking today about the book Until Every Child is Home why the church can and must care for orphans. So let's um let's move into the book. Um talk about uh, how how our understanding uh of this topic really does change our understanding and approach to the great commission. Yes, and just first let me just say congratulations to you on Coda. And you say Krista and Ben? Christina and Ben. Christina uh-huh. and Ben. What this is very exciting. Congratulations to you. And it, it does seem like when we begin to talk about foster care or adoption uh, with folks around us, uh, everyone has an experience, it seems like, or a family member or this or that, and they can get in this conversation. But for believers, we have a unique perspective because of the Great Commission. So the Great Commission, Jesus telling disciples to go and make disciples. And I mentioned just a moment ago these macro themes in Scripture, the Old Testament passages like Jeremiah 7. The New Testament passages like Romans 8 or Ephesians 1, where this concept of adoption comes up. And so we understand the outsider-insider idea of the kingdom of God, that we are born outside and brought in through Jesus Christ, through God's work in the Spirit and, and sealing us for the day of redemption. And these macro themes become personal through adoption because, or in foster care as well, because we want those who are outside to come into the kingdom. And the family provides a bridge for the kind of relationships that can be channels or avenues through which we can communicate these gospel truths. So there's this sense of relationship that comes from foster care and adoption that provides us both the metaphor and the avenue through which to communicate these ideas. So we bring these children into our spheres of life, into our homes through foster care adoption. And we have this near connection that provides a a conduit to communicate of God's love and forgiveness and power. And children, we know this not just in adoption and foster care, but even in children's ministries. Children learn through relationships. They just do. Uh, any core value of a church doing kids' ministry is that kids 
learn information and learn the gospel through relationships. So we have these relational connections with kids and we can share this truth and, and it helps directly. But there are subsidiary uh, benefits for the Great Commission in terms of foster care and adoption because people in our churches see us doing this. Our communities see us doing this and they understand that we are bringing people near. We're bringing them into our sphere of life and we are communicating to them love and care protection that they didn't have before. And these are gospel themes that we can use to talk to our neighbors uh, about these ideas. Uh, for my wife and I, we have had so many gospel conversations with neighbors, friends, people just in our acquaintances and spheres of life because of our adoption of, of our daughters. And uh, they, they see that difference because our daughters are of a different race. So they see the folks see that, but it does provide these opportunities for us to talk uh, with folks about the Great Commission. So we're, we're evangelizing our, our daughters. Uh, just last night, I was reading First Peter 1 with my two adopted daughters. We had family worship at home and uh, all my other kids were out doing other things. My wife was out, but we're, we're reading of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And uh, when I have those kids out with me, folks see us doing the Great Commission. That's Todd Chipman. He and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're really talking about the spirit of adoption and how the spirit of the do- of adoption um, is who we are as Christians and needs to be lived out and walked out uh, in the lives of our congregations, and not only in order that those who are orphaned might be brought into real families, but that the church might be who she really is called to be uh, in the world that God so loves. So we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now. Continuing my conversation with Todd Chipman, we are talking uh, specifically about this new book, which is entitled Until Every Child is Home, Why the Church Can and Must Care for Orphans. But in reality, we're talking about the spirit of adoption. And we are talking about um, what each and every one of us who is in Christ knows to be true, which is that we are adopted into the family of faith. We become uh, redeemed and restored children of God uh, who are given the privilege of calling out Abba Father, who do know um, the Father's provision and protection and care and in that, we not only recover our true identity, but we have this deep sense of belonging, and and then we're free, really, to uh, to explore our purpose and um, live confidently as people in you know in the world who belong to somebody and belong to uh, to something. And uh, and so, Todd, again, you know, thank you for this, and thank you for the way that you um, are shepherding others in this conversation. Um, talk a little bit about how all of this, how the conversation about adoption, particularly in the life of a congregation, talk about how it changes us in terms of the race conversation and maybe in terms of some of the ex, uh, conversations around exploitation. I guess I'm thinking specifically about uh, child sex trafficking. Yes, and these are issues that I learned about as I engaged personally in the process of adopting our girls and then doing more research. When I 
entered into the sphere with my family, I talked with my wife about this possibility of us taking in children, we knew that there was a possibility that the race issue would come up. When we were interviewed by the licensing agency, they specifically asked this, are you ready to take in children with different skin color? And we said, yes, we are. We, we did not think that would be a problem. And for us, it, it really it wasn't for for us, but for our children and for folks around us, there there was not an expressed concern, but you could sort of see some hesitancy about this. And uh, I pastor a church that is primarily Caucasian. We do have partnership ministries with churches that are primarily African-American. So we had some of that in our atmosphere of church, but it really wasn't a part of our DNA. And for many folks who are Caucasian, just hanging out with an African-American person, what does that look like? Or or a Native American person, or a person who's of Chinese descent or Asian descent of a a different nationality, what does that look like? And what are are their habits and routines? And and when I have my girls around me, I'm I'm often holding their hands or touching them in an inappropriate way, obviously, but showing that, that skin on skin with uh, the the children in, in holding hands or something like that is not a bad thing that we can do this and show this sort of racial unity and I think as I had was we had our girls in our home there'd be times where we would be at a store or uh, in a certain environment and the little girls would be away from me for a moment looking at something and or, or at a, an athletic event and I would see kind of how they were treated uh, and again primarily Caucasian environment that, that we were in in these spheres and I would see that these girls are treated a little bit differently than my Caucasian daughters were. But then I would walk up wearing a suit or, or whatever the environment uh, appropriate attire was, and the atmosphere would change in terms of the adults and how they treated these girls. They were not just uh, an annoyance or maybe kids looking to steal something in the store. They were with a guy who's Caucasian wearing a suit. And I saw the atmosphere change, and my eyes have been opened more and more to these these sort of racial tensions that still exist in our culture. And uh, as I did research in the book and interviewing people, not just about race issues with African Americans, but Native Americans as well, and how this sphere of adoption helps churches to have a greater sensitivity to racial issues and because of the capacity of the gospel and its work to unite all sinners of every race. This is a macro theme of the New Testament from Romans 1. Uh, Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all all people. Romans chapter 3, there's no distinction. So we have these gospel truths that take life here in the race conversation in the church as we have uh, this unifying power in taking in children of a different race. And I've, I've seen African-American families take in uh, Caucasian children, and they have the same issues. Uh, and uh, around primarily an African-American congregation, now having Caucasian children there, and they have to deal with these same racial issues, and the gospel has power there. And you mentioned, Carmen, trafficking This was the area of research in the book that I learned the most. And I think it's true for any author. When they write a book, they set out with a plan. They have an agreement with a publisher. And the folks folks at Moody were extremely helpful along the way for me. But we were all learning as we went. And so I'm doing some research. And as I'm researching 
the, the macro themes in foster care and adoption in churches, I began to find more and more folks talking about trafficking in the foster care system. And I became aware of a sex trafficking pipeline the foster care system is. And this is documented in my book from various professionals and reports, uh, FBI reports, uh, local hospitals and their uh, nurses who work with trafficking victims. And so many are out of foster care. And the, the pattern runs something like this. Children are raised in, in vulnerable situations in their families. Part of that vulnerability is drugs. And parents who are neglecting their kids and drug habits are involved in that and crime often. So Child Protective Services removes those children from that environment. And those children often go to a kinship placement or an extended family placement. Well, it seems that the extended family also has some of the same problems often. Drugs, violence, crime, neglect of children, not getting needs met. Social services goes in and pulls the kids out. But kids have now been moved around, so they have uh, this factor of instability in their, their relationships. But what is stable is crime and drugs. And that those two things are power because those lead to money. And as this process goes, children are placed in a, in a foster care home, and it's very difficult for them. They don't attach, so they run away. And when they run, the stable factors of their lives are crime, drugs, because those equal money and power. Those are what sustains. And so, so the, they end, end up on the street, and the cycle continues. Yeah, Todd, you and I are going to have to leave this conversation right here today. But I want to, um, first of all, thank you. And then I want to direct people. The book is Until Every Child is Home, Why the Church Can and Must Care for Orphans. Let me also give a shout out to uh, Todd's ministry platform at scripturestoryline.com. Um, it is it's just awesome. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Uh, Todd Chipman, thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. Pleasure. All right, friends. So when we talk about uh, adoption and when we talk about who we are in Jesus Christ, uh, we understand that we are children of the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as you walk out your adoption story today in the world that God so loves, I want you to have your eyes and hearts open to um, people who are disconnected and orphans in the culture. Who is it uh, that you are in a relationship with, that you are in proximity to, who is honestly disconnected from God and therefore does not know who they are and does not have a sense of their identity, belonging, or purpose. Um, that's our role and responsibility today, to be the, the sinews, the connective tissue, the hands that reach out and the hearts that reach out into a culture that God so loves, uh, a spirit of adoption. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.